When I was a kid, a little kid, and a kid of all ages, the most common question that I was asked to ask by friends and relatives and acquaintances was, what do you want to be when you grow up? This is a question I got countless times as a child. Over the years, as I look back, my answer changed. What do you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to do, and when I was three, I wanted to work for IBM just like my dad. When I was five, I decided that being a grocery bagger was far cooler. So when I was five, I wanted to be a grocery bagger. Then when I became seven, I wanted to be an astronaut. Then when I was nine, I realized there's math involved in astronauting. And so I decided I wanted to be a baseball player. What do I want to be? When I was 11, I realized I don't care what I want to be, but I want to be nothing with math. Then when I was 13, I decided I wanted to be president. Then 15, I reaffirmed my desire to do nothing with math. Then when I was 17, I wanted to become a lawyer. But at 48, people don't ask me that question anymore. I am what I am at this point. I serve as a pastor, which is one of my highest privileges outside my family to serve this church as one of her pastors. Yet that question, what do you want to be, is a question that I think should be put to all of us today. It's an appropriate question. Maybe one of the most timely questions we can ask ourselves. What do you want to be? It's a question we should ask ourselves as a church, Center church. What do we want to be? How do we want to be known? The reason I ask this question, the reason I think this question is timely, is because not just because our culture is changing around us at a breakneck pace. That's been going on for a while. That's been happening. But here's something that's changed, I think, over the last couple of years. Something that's changed about our culture is her opinion about Christianity. Their opinion about Christianity has gone, undergone a serious alteration. The message of the gospel, our message that Jesus is the only way to God, that gospel has always been offensive. It's always been a stumbling block. And our culture has be, always thought of us as a little strange. But now, because of that exclusivity, our culture is beginning to think of us as dangerous. And so it's in that setting we need to ask, what do we want to be? One evangelical voice said, people have often thought Christianity was a little quaint, you know. There, there, you have your little faith kind of thing. But increasingly, we see in a more secular context People are actually saying, your faith is a danger to society. We're used to being looked down and slightly patronized, but I don't think we're used to be think, being thought of as the enemy. And I think that's exactly right. Christianity has gone from people thinking that we're just a little bit strange for believing these things to immoral and dangerous. It's one thing to be viewed, of, viewed, of, viewed by society as a little strange or weird. It's another thing to be viewed of as a threat. 
And there are a growing chorus of people who are going to view our gospel as unsafe, our Bible as a hazard, and our church as subversive. So how do I ask again? How do we want to be? What do we want to be? How do we want to be known? And there are a lot of churches that look to answer this question in these days, and they're going to answer them in different ways. It's tempting to adopt the concerns of the culture and throw all of our efforts into things that the culture would define as social justice. By the same token, it's easy and tempting to shun the concerns of the culture and throw all of our efforts into critiquing the sins of the culture. But both of those responses engender a self-righteousness that I don't think we can afford. It's also tempting to define ourselves by what we are not. What do we want to be? Well, let me first tell you what I'm not. I'm not a Christian nationalist. I'm not a social justice warrior. I'm not an American Christian. I'm not a Christian who happens to be an American. I'm not a progressive. I'm not a conservative. But what we must not do is define ourselves by what we're not. Neither are we called to retreat into some kind of Christian fortress and remove ourselves from the culture around us. We're called to engage We're called to be amongst our culture. We're called to be salt and light to the city, to the community we live in, to our friends that we live, that we see on a regular basis, to our relational circles. So for the rest of this month, we're going to seek to answer the question, what do we want to be? Or maybe a different twist is, how shall we be known by people? It's not enough, I think, for us just to exist and make it through this cultural moment. It's not enough to just say to people, I know you regard my Jesus and his gospel as dangerous, but it's not. That's not enough. I believe we have a real opportunity in this moment to thrive and to make a real difference in our relational connections. But we will make no difference if we do not answer this question, what are we going to be? If we don't answer this question, the same. So, what kind of people are we going to be? How will our culture know us? Wouldn't it be great if we could get the opinion of Jesus Christ? If we could put the question to him, what do you think we should be? What do you think, Jesus, center church should be? Now, as usual, he's way ahead of us, and he's answered that question already. And we're going to read his answer in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. To summarize in one sentence, he's going to say, You, sinner church, you must be a people who have, who love God more than anything else. You must love God with a love that eclipses all other things. Now, you might say that sounds simple. You might say that sounds reductionistic. You might say, duh. But I'll tell you this. Without a love for God, we we would be little more than a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong that can make a lot of noise but neither be salt nor light, light. But when we have a love for God that eclipses all the other loves in our lives, then, 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 and only then, will we be known 
as a people who love God. Jesus tells us that that is what is most important. Let me show you. I'm going to read beginning in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. We join Matthew in the retelling of Jesus interacting with the religious sect called the Pharisees. Verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he, that he here is Jesus, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, that's the Pharisees' opponents, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Lord, we regard your word to be your voice to us today. What we just read, these aren't just the opinions of men. This is your voice speaking to us today. And Lord, I pray that we would be people who heed your voice. I pray, Lord, that you would work within my many limitations. Lord, you know I'm unworthy. I have evidence of my unworthiness today, this week. But Lord, you've called me to stand here today and proclaim your word. I pray that you would work despite my weaknesses, frailty, and sin. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who look to make a difference in this culture, not to stand by and critique it, not to adopt its mores, not to retreat, but to engage. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people that, does, that do just that. And in your name we pray. Amen. So what are we to be? We're to be a people whose love for God eclipses everything else. Three simple points this morning. What, how, and why. What, how, and why. First, what are we to be? A church that loves God first and most. This is very simple. We see this in verse 36. One of the Pharisees, a lawyer, not a lawyer like we would have at, you know, the accident lawyer or whatever, but a lawyer who's an expert in the law, the Old Testament, asks teacher in verse 36, what is the great commandment in the law? So it's another way of saying, what's the most important thing God has told us from the Old Testament? What's the most important thing that we, as followers of God, must do? Now, we know how the answer goes because we just read it. But think for a moment all the ways that Jesus could have answered this question but did not. What is the great commandment in the law? He doesn't say, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, don't commit adultery, don't murder, be good citizens, admire God, fear God, respect God. He doesn't say any of those things, but instead he says something far more demanding. Verse 37, he says, you shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So what's the most important thing for us as a church? What's the most important thing for each of us as individuals? That we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our souls, and with all our minds. In other words, that we be a people that have a love for God that eclipses everything else. He commands us to love God more than anything or anyone else. Now, have you ever, let me ask this question, have you ever commanded someone else to love you? I haven't. I have a wife Four kids, two parents, one set of in-laws, three siblings. I have grandparents, and I've never said to one of them, you must love me. Love me. I'm commanding you, you must love me now. Not once. So it's strange here for Jesus to say, hey, what's the most important thing? Well, the most important thing is that you love God. He is commanding the people, to love God. Now, Jesus is constantly saying things that push the envelope and make thinkers think and scoffers scoff. So how can we, how can he command that we love God like this? We've seen what? Now we look to, look to how. How? How are we to love God? Now, it might be that you say, okay, well, you know, maybe I can love God like I love my wife or like I love my kids or like I love my dog or like I love pasta or like I love rainy afternoons or like I love a night where you can open the windows and not burn. Can I love God like that? No. What does he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now notice he doesn't just say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Actually, the word all is repeated three times. He doesn't have to do that grammatically, but here's the emphasis. You. Now, this also isn't, it's not enough for us to be associated with people who love God like this. Actually, this is individual. A lot of times we'll talk about it in the scriptures where we, we'll see in like Ephesians or Philippians or the, the gospel or, or the, uh, Paul's letters, we'll see that you is often plural. Here, you is singular. He's saying you and me, each of us by ourselves, we each must love the Lord our God, with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all our minds. So how are we to love God? The most important thing is that we love God. How are we to do, the, how are we to do this? With all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our minds. Now that is specific. And demanding. Now, make no mistake, he, the Lord's not breaking humanity down into different parts. The idea here is that Jesus is telling us the most important thing is that we use our every faculty, all of who we are, to love God. We're to be a people who love God with a love 
that eclipses everything else. This means that we are to be a people who love God with our every moment, with our every bit of energy, with our every thought, with our every act, with our every word, with our every desire, with our every dream, with our every disappointment, with everything we are, we are to be a people who love God. Now, I've not loved God like that. And I don't think I'm the only one. But this is what the Bible says. What are we to be? We're to be a people that love God. How are we to love him? We're to love him with all that we are in every moment, all the time. And last, why are we to love him like this? Why are we to love God with a love that eclipses all loves? Now, it makes, it's a question Jesus doesn't directly answer in our text, but it's here. And it makes intuitive sense, maybe more by way of analogy. If you're married, would it be meaningful for you to take your spouse to dinner, to their favorite restaurant, let them order their favorite food, look into their eyes and say, I'm with you now, and I've been with you all these years because I'm obligated to. Now, would the spouse's heart go, oh, thank you for that. Thank you so much for being true to your word. Your yes is yes, and your no is no. Praise God. Should we get dessert? Or imagine at the end of every phone call that I have with my wife, instead of saying, by love, I say, by obligation. Or, love you too. I'm obligated to you too. Or, bye, sweetheart. I could say, bye, responsibility. That's ridiculous, right? I hope that's ridiculous to everybody here. It's ridiculous because spouses are called to be together because they love each other and they reaffirm that love. How much more ridiculous? That's ridiculous in a human marriage, but how much more absurd and ludicrous is this as we relate to God? Jesus tells us that the most important thing is not that we're obligated to the Lord, even though if we're honest, there's a lot of times that's how we feel. That's how I feel. I'm not the only one, I don't think. Jesus tells us the most important thing is not that we're obligated to him, but that we love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. We're not called to be obligated to him with all our hearts and with all our souls and with all our minds. The Lord is not interested in followers who, who, who follow him because they think they should or because they're obligated to. No, what he's asking for here is this. He's saying, here's what's most important for all of you. That you love the Lord your God with a love that eclipses all other things. 
that you follow him and associate with him because you love him most of all. So who are we to be? We're to be a people that love God. How are we to love him? With all that we are, but we still haven't really answered the why question, have we? Why? Why should we love God? Listen, in the scriptures, whenever we receive a command, we should always look and ask, why? Why? And you know what? There's always a reason. There's never the dad answer. Well, because. He doesn't guarantee we're going to understand all the ways the answer. Sometimes the answer is going to be, I'm not going to tell you. Sometimes the answer is something we might not want to hear, but he's always going to give us a reason. So why? Why should we love God like this? Center church, why should we be a people who love God like this? Because of his love for us. Think about it. The only reason, the only way we can even be equipped to love God is by beholding the love that he has for us. Love is all, God, 1 John 4, 7 says God is love. He's not just one who loves or is loving, but God is love. He never had to learn how to love. He always has love. He is the source of all love in this universe. All love is from him. He can do nothing contrary to love. He is not growing in love. He has never learned to love. John can say that God is love. God is and always has been love. For to be love, God, and for, for love to be love, God must express it. That's what love is. Love is not something that is, is like a collector's item that you hold in your hands and, and say, oh, isn't this amazing? I'm going to keep this in mint condition, so I'm going to put it under, under glass and make sure that nobody touches it. No, for love to be love, love must be given. And God is a God who gives. God is love. So that means he is self giving. He is constantly self-giving. He is constantly giving of himself. And maybe the most significant way he expressed his love before was on the mountain, in the Old Testament, was on the mountain before Moses. He said of himself <coughs> in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is abounding in steadfast love and will forgive, but will not clear the guilty. Why? Because that would be profoundly unloving. But that's another sermon. You can think about that in your quiet time this week. What we're doing here is we're asking, why should we love this God with all our heart and soul and mind? The first answer is because that's the way God has revealed himself to us. See, 
it's one thing for him to say, I am abounding in steadfast love. It's another thing to see evidence of that steadfast love. And the greatest evidence, even though the Pharisees didn't see it, was standing right before them. John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. His only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have, ever la- have eternal life. Who? Whoever. So the son has come so that whoever... Do you see any limitations there? I don't. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but what? Have eternal life. Here is how we measure the love of God for us. God sent his son in love so that he might rescue people from everlasting death to everlasting life. God so loved the world that he sent his son to save the world that he loved. He loved his son, but he gave his beloved son to the world so that through that though Jesus was crushed, the world might be saved. This is how he expresses his love. This is what Paul says. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We see, why should we love this God? Why should we love this God with all our heart and with all our mind and with all our soul? Because we look and see the measure of his love for us in his son. The measure of his love is found in the immeasurable love of Christ for us. The measure of God's love for us is found in Jesus. Jesus crucified. Jesus buried. Jesus resurrected. Jesus ascended. Jesus interceding right now and Jesus returning one day. He is the measure of the love of God. When we had no thought of him, he moved toward us in love. He knew that we would do nothing to reach out to him on our own. He knew that we were blind and witless and unable to find him. He knew that we would never be able to find him on our own. And so in love, he came to find us by sending Jesus Christ. And so back to our original question. Why are we to love God like this? Why are we to be a people who love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind? Why? Because he loves us already. We're not coming to him. To someone who's cold. And distant. And remote. We're not coming to this. This this one who's seated on a throne with a. A face that is like concrete. Gazing and glaring at you. With a scepter in his hand and lightning bolts in the other. Just waiting. To smite. We come to one. 
who instead of sending lightning bolts, sent Jesus, the light of the world. See, when we see this command in light of Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul, when we see this command in light of what Christ has done, it makes a whole lot more sense. How has he loved us? Though he loved his God, his Father, with all his heart, he loved us with all his heart, so much that his heart stopped beating in his chest. Though he loved his Father with all his soul, for us he tasted death and commended his soul to the Father. He loved his Father with all his mind. And he knew that the only way for us to be saved for us to understand and experience real love is if he died and he died. And so we look here at this text and see the standard that is written here that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And we say, we can't. Impossible. But that takes our eyes and puts them on Jesus. What are we to be? How shall we be known in the community? What are we to be? We're to be a people who love God. Because we've beheld the face of God in Jesus Christ. Because we've seen God in the Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. This is why we sing about Jesus. This is why we talk about Jesus. This is why we look for Jesus in the Bible. We're not importing something in there just to try to make us feel good. What we're, what we're doing is we're making love intelligible. Love is only intelligible if we see Christ. And so here what we see is God making his love known through his Son for us. And our only response, the only response that makes a lick of sense is that we give ourselves and all the faculties we have in love to him. His love, it chastens us. His love, it secures us. His love emboldens us and inspires us. His love moves us and humbles us and stirs us and awakens us. There is no love like his love, and therefore, in response to him, let us be a people who love this God with a love that eclipses everything else. If there's one way for us to be known in this community, let us be the church that loves God. Let us be that church. Now, there are other entailments that go along with this, and we're going to talk about this stuff as the fall unfolds. Let us be the people who love God more than politics or individual rights or our opinions about masks, or our vaccination perspectives, or CRT viewpoints, or social justice stances, or gender concerns, or transsexual alarms. Let us be a people who love God more than these things. Now, as those that love God, we're going to talk about all that stuff. 
We're going to ask, how does a thoughtful Christian both think about these things and engage in a culture that thinks about these things wrongly? Because you know what? It's really easy to criticize a culture that is broken to make ourselves feel better, and it doesn't work. It's much better for us to understand how the culture is thinking and then ask ourselves, how can we, as those who are called to love the Lord their God with all their hearts, souls, and minds, how can we engage in a culture in such a way so that they might see the love God has for them? And that's what we're going to try to do. So this fall, we'll talk about these things. And and if I could ask you, as members, come to the members meeting next Sunday night, because I guarantee we're going to do something that you haven't seen done before um, at a church. So I'm excited for all that we're going to do this fall. And we're going to look to engage in our culture. We're not going to retreat. And we're going to engage. And we're going to engage with love. If there's one thing that we ought to be known as, it's a people who love God. A people who have love for God that eclipses everything else. This is what our culture needs. This is what our friends need. This is what our family needs. This is what our neighbors need. They need to see us committed with our every faculty to God in love. Speaking to them or, or interacting with them in any other way will make us out to be noisy gongs or clanging cymbals. No, we want to be a people who have a love for God that eclipses everything else. That doesn't mean we won't say hard things at times. We will. But the reason we will say those things is because of love. That doesn't mean we won't disagree. We will. And that doesn't mean we won't disagree here internally. We will. But if our motive and if our heart is to be a people that have as the most important thing to be a people that has, have love that eclipses everything else, then we can make a practical difference both in our lives and in the community around this culture. So what are we called to be? Those that love God most. How do we want to be known? Those that love God most. One thought as we close. This sort of, this seeing this here in the scriptures ought to give us the, the fact that God loves us and he calls us to love him back. It ought to give us confidence. Confidence and not fear. It's very tempting to be afraid. There are many of you who might look around and think things are so bad. I feel bad that my kids are growing up in this world. I'm afraid for my grandkids. I think we might be able to have a different perspective. If the Lord loves us, and he does, and if he has called us to live in this world, loving him with all of our faculties, and he has, he has put us here in this moment, at this present time, for a reason, and we do not have to be afraid. Because behind us, and undergirding us, and inspiring us, and filling us, is a God who loves us. And he's not going to throw us to the wolves, and he's not going to put us in a place that he doesn't give us the strength to be able to interact with people in a way that will honor him. 
This means that he will not, because he's loving, he will not allow anything to come to us or upon us that will ultimately harm us. And you know what? All of us in these moments, we're here for a reason. And may, over the next month, may we grow in confidence. Not because we hear the news is getting better in the world, but because we recognize the grand purpose of our God and what we're doing here as those who are loved by God, who love God, and interact with the culture accordingly. If there's one thing our culture needs, if it's one thing our unbelieving friends and relatives need, it's to know this love. It's for them to see you committed to God and for them to say, that does not make sense. Why? Oh, because of God's commitment to me in Christ. Tell me more about that. We have every reason for confidence. So who are we to be? We're to be a people who love God. How are we to love him? We're to be a people that love him with all we are. Why are we to love him? Because he loves us. So may we be a church. Here's how we do May we be a church that is known both internally and externally as a people who love God more than anything else. Next week, we'll think about this as it relates to other people, specifically unbelievers. Let's pray. I pray, Lord, that where we have gotten distracted, you would help us each. Where we have allowed things to press in and gain our attention that we ought not to, I pray you would just allow us to be able to come to you knowing that you are good and kind and gracious and forgiving and loving. Lord, I pray, Lord, for our church. I pray for all of us, Lord. I pray for all of us here at Center Church that you would allow us to be men and women who recognize that both we're called to love you and you because you've loved us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would interact with the culture around us in ways that are redemptive and hopeful, watching to see what you might do. Lord, you are bigger than any public policy. You're bigger than any virus. You're bigger than any fear. You're bigger than anything that we'll face in the next few days, weeks, months, and years. And Lord, our prayer is that we would be a people who are marked by love for you because we're loved by you. And I pray that that would be obvious both internally and externally. May we not be afraid to ask hard questions and give hard answers. Oh, but Lord, may they be bathed in and motivated by your love, both for us and for all. And Lord, I pray that there would be many people who right now, as they wake up, 
regard the Christian message as dangerous and subversive, Lord. I pray that they would take that message at some point in the weeks and months to come. And I pray that they would say, oh, that Jesus, he's my Jesus. And I pray that the gospel would impact their lives in our community and amongst our friends and relatives, both today and forever. These things you and you alone can do. Amen.